0: And welcome to the Dishing with Stephanie's Dish podcast, where we talk to people in the food space. A lot of times we're talking to cookbook writers, but today we are talking to someone who's a self described forager who does forest landscaping and creates food forests in people's yards. He has his own food forest in the Longfellow neighborhood in Minneapolis and is also the founder of Minneaha Falls Landscaping. Russ Henry, I'm so glad to have you here today. I first read about you in the Star Tribune and I was like, how do I not know this man?
1: Well, hi, Stephanie. Thank you very much for having me here today. And it's a pleasure to meet you and, and get to get to uh, know about your podcast, too. I'm surprised that uh, this is the first I'm hearing about your podcast, too. So it's uh, a meeting of the minds here.
0: Absolutely. So I, I read the article and it basically talked about how you started in foraging and why don't you give me in your own words, sort of your trajectory, because it's obviously part of your business, but you must have obviously personal hobby and passion about it.
1: Yeah, I am absolutely enamored about plants. I just love plants. Um, I, I love traveling to different places and getting to know the plants there. I absolutely love utilizing Minnesota native plants uh, to both to grow food uh, for the family, but also to um, make a very diverse uh, wildlife environment in my yard. Um, and so I started as a little kid growing food with my mom. Um, we lived on a farm in southern Illinois and she taught me how to garden. And um, I, I I just loved it so much that when I was a teenager, I started working in nurseries. And in in the, the the plant nursery environment, it really opened my eyes up to the to the world of plants, and and I started just kind of seeing the world through plants, and uh, and so ever since you know since since then, I, I just continued my whole career working in landscape and plants, and and have uh, focused my career on soil health, pollinator health, water quality carbon sequestration and all of that can be found in a food forest
0: yeah and you have um a small yard in longfellow but you have and you started out you said gardening and now you're completely going to the native food forest type of and and you can get like tell me how much food you can actually get from your yard because it seemed like a lot
1: Oh, well, yeah, we have a lot of different edible plants out here. Uh, we, of course, because I don't put up guards for the squirrels or rabbit fencing or any of that, we share a lot of the food that we grow with wildlife. But um, we counted this summer, we counted 168 different species in the yard of plants. And uh, our yard is just a small, you know, it's just a regular sized Minneapolis urban lot. Uh, it's it's maybe 100 feet Deep and about fifty feet wide, and uh, you know, with a house in the middle of it. So, so um, we really pack it in. There's no. There used to. When I moved in, it was all lawn, and uh, it was mowed weekly. And we we started creating veggie gardens throughout. We we went organic right away. Made a bee lawn to to attract pollinators to the space. Uh, Then the veggie gardens came in, and then pollinator pocket gardens and um pretty soon i realized i was on a trajectory and i started in my pathway towards going uh towards growing in the yard here and um uh over the last 15 years what's come to fruition here is that we have a food forest it's it's uh you know it's an urban lot sized forest so sometimes we think about forests as you know, rolling hills and mountains, and 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 here we're taking kind of the principles of the forest and bringing those to bear on the home landscape.
0: Yeah, and all Minnesota natives, right?
1: Um, not all Minnesota natives. Like we have an apple tree, and we have a couple pear trees, and cherry trees, and and plums that are not Minnesota native, but almost uh, almost all Minnesota native. I don't know the percentage, but I'm I'm. We're definitely over 80% with our natives. And some of the edibles that we have are native, like the hazelnut and the service berries. Um, We have um, wintergreen, which is a fun ground cover that's a Minnesota native. Um, several, you know, several of the edible species are native, you know, and there's a lot of native plants that are edible that folks don't even know are edible. Yeah. So daylilies, for instance, every part of the daylily is edible. Who knew that?
0: I just found that out like two years ago and I was dying and I love daylilies and I have a lot of them. And like, would you eat it in a salad or how would you eat it?
1: There's a lot of different ways in the spring, the greens are fresh and yummy. And especially when they're young and when they're just little shoots, picking some of those, putting those in salads and eating them fresh is wonderful. Uh, later in the season, you'll probably want to stir fry or uh, add it in to a soup. It's a bit, it's a very mild onion flavor because it is a uh, part of the Allium, a member of the Allium family.
0: And also I learned uh, from my friend, Alan Burgo, who's also a forager that you can eat hostas. Who knew that?
1: Yep. Hostas that you can, uh, of course, anything wrapped in bacon is delicious, but you can wrap them up and uh, wrap the uh, the spikes as they're growing out of the ground, cut some of those off and treat them like asparagus. You can wrap them in bacon and cook them in a little butter and bacon and some shallots and it's delicious.
0: And do they then, is it ruined for the season or do they send up new spikes or how does oh, that no, work? they'll
1: Daylilies, especially if you got a nice uh, stand of them, they will really continue sending up new, new foliage through the season.
0: So you don't have to worry about that. What about the hostas too? Because I've wondered about that. If I cut those little baby leaves, does that mean it's done for the season as a showy nope. plant?
1: No, it'll it'll send another spike up. You don't probably want to do this with the itty bitty plants that are just establishing. You don't want to over harvest. Um, and even a well-established plant could be over harvested. So on a, on a grown hosta, you might take no more than a third of the spikes as right. they're coming out of the ground.
0: Yep. Okay, cool, because I think I'm actually going to do that this year, because I've been thinking
1: about it. Yeah, there's some cool recipes out there for that.
0: When you are in your business, and you're helping other people set up these types of landscapes, like for me, I just moved into my house two years ago, and I bought my house from a um, master gardener who's a very interested in native plants. And of course, right away, I was like, well, I like flowers, so I'm going to add more flowers. And the deer came and have pretty much eaten them all like there's a reason probably why she did this native planting and it makes total sense to me now in hindsight. But when you're like helping someone transition their yard from a lawn to something more sustainable, where do you usually start like what are the bedrocks that you have to think about.
1: Well, thank you. That's a great question. And of course, soil is the foundation. Healthy soil is the foundation of every healthy ecosystem. And so we help folks start on a, we have a seven step trajectory to get folks to reforest their yard. And um, within that seven steps, the first first step is quite simple. It's go organic. Stop introducing synthetics into the system. That's synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, and and pesticides includes herbicides and and insecticides, fungicides, all the different isides. We don't invite them to the garden party anymore. Uh, So we start by going organic so that we can build the healthy soil system. And the reason that I say that is I do, I practice soil microbiology. I was trained by Dr. Elaine Ingham in how to practice soil microbiology. So I will take soil samples before and after I see a lawn space being treated with a, with herbicide I've done that I've, I've uh, tested samples um, in the ditch uh, where there's perennial grasses growing and then five feet away in the farm field where they've been treating with herbicide and and insecticide and what I can tell you is that the the is sides the herbicides the pesticides they kill the soil microbiology soil, Fungi, bacteria, nematodes, arthropods, all of these creatures are very vulnerable to pesticides. So we eliminate them first so that we can, we eliminate the pesticides first so we can build up the soil microbiology in order to have a healthy soil system underneath there to support the plants. Because after all, we got to remember that plants, they grow their food, almost all their food that they need. They grow through photosynthesis. They create sugar all day long. But They're using about 60% of the sugars that they make to grow their bodies and 40% of the sugar that they make. That's a lot. They're emitting through their roots just to feed fungi and bacteria, which are the foundational uh, uh, creatures in a healthy soil ecosystem. Fungi and bacteria actually work together to structure the soil. So that's the first step. Go organic, help the soil be healthy. That's the foundation. The second step then is a bee lawn. Have you heard of bee lawns? Yes. Yes. I have. And so, yeah. So beelons lawns are really fun. They're, um, kind of a, they're Minnesota is, is, is on the vanguard of, of a lot of healthy, um, uh, landscape types. And so, and, and B lawn is certainly is one of them. bee lawn is, uh, we have a two seed mixes in Minnesota for bee lawn. It's a low walkable space that, uh, you don't have to mow that has forageable plants. So the bees can come in, um, People ask me, will I get stung in a bee lawn? No, you know, I haven't had any of my clients. We do hundreds of these bee lawns. I haven't had any clients tell me that they're getting stung, stung in their bee lawn. And I believe that's because the bees have plenty to eat. So it's a no mow lawn. It's, it's excellent. That way you're saving on a lot of resources and time. Um, And it's a great way to bring the pollinators in so that by the time you do get down to your your veggie gardens and your food forest, where you're trying to really rely on the the pollination services, you've been growing those pollinators all the way along. So So a question for
0: you about that, like, you know, you for bee pollinating lawns, you see things like clover and you, you. I'm in this position where I really have Creeping Charlie that I'm trying to keep out because it gets into my garden beds and it's just generally a pain. And yet I used to have clover, but then the clover didn't grow as much, so then the creeping charlie came in and then I couldn't distinguish between the two, so I was just pulling everything and I kind of got into this weird space where now I'm like looking at this this lawn that I don't really want the lawn per se but I also don't want creeping Charlie to get into every garden bed I have. So what would you do for me?
1: Okay. So first of all, where you don't want Charlie, you need to pull it. So, um, you know, and you pull it and then you overgrow. So it's remove and replace you want to pull, and then you replace it with something that's equally as strong. Now. Um, I, I love creeping Charlie, actually, I think it's a wonderful plant and a lot of, I think it has a bad, a bad reputation out there, and you know, a lot of plants have bad reputations just because the chemical industries want us to hate them. Um, now, creeping Charlie, if we think about it, it's a member of the mint family. All bees love all mint plants when it blooms. Bees of all different stripe go for it. Um, Minnesota native bees, bumblebees, uh, honeybees, all love it. Um, it's a super hardy ground cover that is drought resistant. Um, And keep in mind that the landscape industry, the industry that I've been a part of my whole career, mostly wants us to rely on very weak plants. So they want us to rely on non-native cultivars. Those are weak just to start with. And then for the, the vast majority of the ground cover space, they want us to rely on Kentucky bluegrass, which is a very weak plant. Right. And we have to pamper it with all kinds of fertilizers we have to give it. And it's especially, it's weakened even further because we grow it as a monocrop. So uh, I think when I look at a very strong plant that's capable of taking over a landscape, I go, that's a low maintenance landscape plant right there.
0: Okay, so, so then the question is, because uh, I never thought about it like that and I'm, I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. However, I'm under the impression and I'm sure it's wrong that Creeping Charlie is going to take over and crowd out other plants that I have in my yard. Is that the case? Because it climbs all over them and suffocates them.
1: Yeah. So it will climb over, you know, hostas and, you know, and it, it, it can take advantage of soil um, conditions that are better for uh, a plant at Creeping Charlie's phase of ecosystem succession than maybe what you have currently. Think of that as a soil problem the soil is not supporting the deeper rooted perennials because it's probably more bacterially dominated, doesn't have enough fungal presence in it. The creeping Charlie over time will add more organic matter, but then that's going to over time allow other shrubs and and trees to start growing up taller than the Charlie. So whenever I'm trying to beat a plant, be it creeping Charlie or buckthorn or, um, uh, um, garlic mustard, you know, you name it. Yep. Um, my, my strategy is remove and replace, and I'm always replacing with a stronger, taller native plant. Okay. So if I, if I want to get rid of buckthorn, I'll put in, uh, I'll remove it and maybe I'll put in choke cherries or service berry. Um, they come in a little bit taller, uh, at, at least the same height, maybe a little taller and, um, very strong you know uh chokecherry is extremely strong spreading native plant so it's not the plant you know it's not that i hate that buckthorn is spreading i hate that it doesn't feed native wildlife right it's not that i hate that charlie spreads it's that sometimes i don't want it to in my strawberry patch because it'll take out strawberries so i will control it i will then really work on adding more fungi to the soil because we know that Charlie is an early ecosystem stage uh, uh, plant that loves a bacterially dominated soil. And the further down the road we go in ecosystem succession, the more fungi we get in the soil. So if we want to grow taller, more woody plants, stronger plants, we probably, especially if they're, if they're further along in ecosystem succession, uh, we want to give them more fungi in the soil. And we, we add fungi to the soil by adding wood mulch. And by making sure the ground is covered in green, think about wood mulch as a temporary ground cover, and then you can utilize bee lawn or uh native ground covers or other ground covers as uh as a as a long term plan for covering the ground
0: right for bee lawn, do you just start with seeds?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um you there is a one sod grower for Beelon in Minnesota that I know of, and we're gonna be testing out his new product next year. But otherwise, we do everything from seed. Um we have a rapid transition and a moderate transition. I have actually some excellent YouTube videos that I'll just okay. plug right now. One I'll about put them in the pods. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. We've got a bee lawn video. We have a food forest video. These are all on the um, Minnesota State Horticultural Society's YouTube page.
0: Okay. I love that. So another challenge in my lawn here, just not to talk about me, but I do think this is something that more people are having to contend with is pests, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got the Asian beetles. I have the Asian jumping worms. Well, you do. I do, and I have them. My neighbor has them. The neighbors above us have them, and the rain comes and it washes all the eggs down into our yard again. We have been treating them with a, um, I think it's a a hull from the quinoa. Um, It's you can it's an organic um, treatment, and what it does apparently is you sprinkle it on twice a year, and it um, kills the the worm casings. And the eggs, if you do it at the right temperature, it's kind of involved. Like what we're doing, just try to maintain this garden and the soil health because of these worms. And it's just, it's crazy. And I don't know if like, I'm just unlucky, but I had them at my house in St. Paul too,
1: before I moved. Very unlucky. Yeah, that's pretty rare.
0: Yeah. I feel like they're really way more than people know. So you talk about mulch. And we have to be super careful about mulch and make sure that it's heated at a high enough temperature so that supposedly it's killed off all these eggs of these things, but whether it has or hasn't, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of, you know, I can dig in my soil, particularly in areas that are harder to treat because I have a really large yard. I have a really large, it's like a forest basically. I can like look down and I can see the worms like right underneath the top of the soil because they're eating all of the deciduous matter and making it um, all clumpy and like those coffee grounds, like exactly like you see in the pictures. So it's challenging me to a stay motivated because you have to treat them and it can be very frustrating and sort of gross when you're in your garden and you're just digging out these disgusting worms. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like, trying to think about different ways to utilize different ground covers and plants that have a root system that can sustain these worms.
1: Yeah. So uh, thanks a lot for bringing up the jumping worms and other non-native insect species. So um, jumping worms, a major problem and uh, could be something that actually in the long-term forces serious and, and very big changes in the landscape industry. Um, here's what I've heard. And I've, I've taken some classes on the jumping worms from, uh, scientists from the U of M. And so what I understand to be true is that they don't do well in native plant environments. The jumping worms, um, in a meadow can't really thrive. They might be present, but they're not going to take over in a lawn space or a hosta garden or a petunia garden. You know, your your kind of, um, cultivar gardens. They go wild. Yep. Yep. So I want to do experiments. Um, I've got a couple of experiments I'd like to do. Uh, one, I'd like to replace a cultivar garden with a native garden and just utilizing our normal methodologies and see what happens, see if we can beat the jumping worms or if they beat us. Um, I'd also would like to attempt a, 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 uh, an overwhelm strategy. So I'm always removing and replacing uh, and after maybe a quinoa treatment, as you're suggesting, a, um, for a removal, then maybe come in with a non-native. Now, now the, the, the fact is that there are no native worms in Minnesota. Right, right, right. So, so any worms we bring in are non-native. But if we bring in one that can't survive the winter to overwhelm the numbers and try and eat up the organic matter, then maybe we can bring the overall worm population down Um, it's just simply by removing a segment of the Asian worm population coming in uh, then with um, uh, red wiggler worms, compost worms that can't survive Minnesota winters, bringing a whole bunch of those in, try and overwhelm that the system so that the, the, in the, in the summer where you're doing this treatment during that summer, the, the red wiggler worms go crazy and take over. Maybe that's enough to knock the um that especially in combination maybe with the native plantings would be enough to knock out these are theoretical i don't know yeah. but it, it's a big and issue. it's
0: interesting because the the worms are in the schwammagen forest they're in the superior national forest my garden up in ely has them too yeah. and i probably brought them to my garden in ely not knowing um on my shoes or it's yeah. just it's it's hard to say exactly how it happened but it. Yeah. And, and I didn't move any plants from St. Paul to the house that I'm in now. Um, so I don't feel like I brought them into this house, but they were here. And I mean, anyway, it's a very interesting challenge. Um, and I think people are getting, I know it's being studied all over. And I do think it will change the landscaping industry and certainly maybe the way that plants are shared and, and traded. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's something that has been, a little bit of a bummer in my gardening life that I've had to just get my mind around it and see yeah. it as part of this ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I I challenge everybody out there. Um, I do 300 consultations a year and uh, at different uh, you know residential and and commercial and and uh, home and even farm landscapes, and um, I I so I get to see what's happening kind of uh, when you piece it all together. To the landscapes writ large in Minnesota, and so what I'd like to challenge everybody is to think about to stop necessarily thinking about invasive species and start thinking about invadable landscapes. So we have taken all of these pristine landscapes that that you know between the time of the glaciers and colonization were managed by native people and wildlife u- using wildlife and fire. Uh, And they were managed to this degree of abundance that when you read historical accounts, I was just reading a historical account of Minnehaha Creek, which of course flows from Lake Minnetonka all the way to to the Mississippi River and cuts east to west through the whole city of Minneapolis. That creek before colonization or, or during the period of early colonization, the white settlers would go down to the creek and they'd be able to use pitchforks to get the fish out of the creek because they were so abundant. And they pitchfork them out into barrels. They take those barrels home and feed their hogs on these on these fish from the creek. Yeah, so that's funny. the abundance we found. And that story of just kind of stealing that abundance from the land in order to put it into to the fat of the pig, that story is, you know, that's colonization. And that's, that's where we're at. We've created these landscapes that we, first we dismantled them. And then we, we, Uh, we attacked them, uh, strapped them down with, uh, you know, farmland and development. So I always talk about corn, soy, lawn, and pavement as being the four horsemen of the landscape apocalypse. And when we're seeing the, the, you know, the ecosystems completely fall apart and all of the insect life, you know, just disappearing around us and the bird life too, Well, this is colonization. This is a result of us creating invadable landscapes and trading wholesale, excellent, healthy landscapes for corn, soy, lawn, and pavement. Yeah.
0: When someone's thinking about turning their yard into a food forest or a sustainable ecosystem, is there like a price point? Like, is it like between X amount of dollars and X amount of dollars that people can budget? Because we spend so much money on lawn service and pesticides and all of these things i i don't think that when people think about going native that they because it does it costs money to buy the plants but in the end i imagine it's cheaper
1: yes um the the basic starting price point on a fully native landscape going from a complete uh kentucky bluegrass lawn is zero a person can literally transition for zero dollars um, you don't have to go out and buy the plants. The birds will leave them on your property. They'll start growing. Um, you can eliminate mowing, which will allow woody plants to start growing in, in, in the yard and weeds too. And then you can selectively remove the non-native weeds, keeping the native weeds, allowing them to grow, allowing other natives to come in. And, and that's a very easy, that's one of our main strategies for our first for first few years here was just seeing what would come up when we stopped mowing. Right. We got mulberries that way. Um, we got um, uh, pagoda dogwoods that way, which, you know, mulberries and pagoda dogwoods, they're both for sale at native plant nurseries and you can spend, you know, between 10 and, you know, $500 on one of those trees. Now anybody who's done a, a good amount of, um, uh, kind of landscaping ecosystem work will tell you that planting a small tree is much much more effective for the long-term health and the trajectory of the growth of that tree than getting a big one so a lot of folks say well i don't have time i you know i'm i'm in my 40s 50s 60s 70s i don't want to wait for uh you know an old yeah. tree to grow up well that's just think of it this way in five years, if you plant an acorn and, and, uh, and you plant uh, a 10-foot um, a, a bald and burlap tree, uh, in five years, that acorn is going to be half the size of your bald and burlap tree. And in 10 years, it's going to be the same size. And in 20 years, it's going to be bigger. So uh, the, the smaller you start with, the bigger first the, the plant invests in its root system in the soil system that you have and so always start small that's a way to bring the cost down uh and then um you know just eliminate mowing that's another way to bring the cost down other than that think about making creating pockets of your favorite plants in in spaces throughout the yard that's another inexpensive way to go now how how much can you spend Well, how much do you have? Yeah, sure. You know, of course, with anything you can, you can get the Cadillac version or you can get the Ford version. So, you know,
0: what's your favorite, like Minnesota plant right now that you're just like, can't get enough of that you have at your, at your business or in your yard that you just think is like a great performer.
1: Well, I'm nuts for oak trees.
0: I live in an oak forest.
1: Oh, there you go.
0: So I have oak... eight mature oak trees on my property. Oh, wonderful. What kind of oaks? Uh, I don't even know, actually. I think if I looked it up, I could find out because the lady that I bought the house from gave me very detailed records. But, you know, the oaks are super mature. It takes quite a bit to maintain them. You know, we're giving them nutrients and trying to keep them from oak wilt and um, trying to be good stewards of the oaks. But It's funny. My dog eats them too. And I've read that they can be poisonous in animals, but I can't stop him from eating them because I have so many. And he eats eats the, he does. And then he spits out the, I think he likes to chew them. Like, I don't know how much he actually ingests. I think he likes the crunchiness of it and then spits out most of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They have strong tannins in them that, you know, acorns are edible for people. Even if you boil out the tannins, but I'm sure a dog chewing on them and spitting them out. I mean, dogs get into all kinds of crazy things. Yeah. Um, but but oak trees, um, I'd love to I'd love to consult with you about your oak trees sometimes because I do encounter a lot of folks spiking them with with uh, fertilizer nutrients, and that's that's the wrong way to go with with yeah. oak trees because it will invite in bacterial diseases. So instead, we want to make sure that the entire under the canopy space is a a native garden. Yeah a multi-layered native garden. The reason I love oak trees so much is because they have uh, the ability to host more caterpillars, more moths, uh, and some butterflies than any other plant in Minnesota. Huh. So we, we have seven native oaks in Minnesota. And um, burr oak is my favorite because it's so gnarly looking and beautiful when they get big. It just, it looks like it's out of a uh, out of a fairy tale kind of yeah, thing, yeah, out of the, right. the hobbits right? Yeah, and um, so so I love I love oak trees, and I and I always encourage folks plant them in groups of two or three so that they have each other to rely on, only maybe five or ten feet apart. That's how they'd grow in a forest, and that way, when the big winds come, they won't get knocked down as easy. And then underneath them, plant a native understory of ferns sedges grasses and forbs that um, can expand with the canopy of the tree so you don't have to mow up underneath it and that way when the caterpillars are in the tree and and keep in mind that caterpillars are extremely important because all of our songbirds have to have caterpillars in order to raise their young so that's why i love the oaks because they grow the caterpillars but caterpillars they they spend a little bit of their time in in the tree and then 94% of all caterpillars drop out of the tree and have to have a soft landing under the oak tree in order to be able to grow into a moth. Um, and, and for that life cycle to take place, we need that to happen tens, hundreds of thousands of times in our oak tree every season so that the birds can come and get enough, uh, enough um, uh, caterpillars in order to feed their young. Just you one. Birds? What's that? Do you
0: feed birds seed, or yes, do you have the, enough in, in your yard from your plants?
1: In the winter, um, I do because the birds that uh, um, that rely on seeds in the winter, there's not enough forage in my urban neighborhood for them. Yep. Yep.
0: I feed so, birds too. You so and I in, are going to be fast friends. I just. Know oh I'm-
1: yeah. Well I was just reading you know Doug Tallamy has some great books out there. I'm actually going to talk to him tomorrow. I'm doing an interview of him tomorrow and he's uh he's written a lot about the the keystone species, oaks being one of them. And he describes how a uh a, a um nest of baby um chickadees will require I think I'm getting this. I think it's 2000 um that that the mama bird bring back 2000 uh, uh, baby or 2000 caterpillars to feed those babies over just the course of like 14 days or something like that. So it's just thousands of these caterpillars are required to keep even just a a few chickadees alive in the yard.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, we could go on forever. I have a feeling, but thank you for being my (laughs) guest today. I've loved it. I do. I have like four service berry recipes in my cookbook. Nice. And I put them in there because I, I just love the idea of eating more of what we grow and gardening happens in all kinds of ways. And I'm going to eat some daylilies this season. I swear I am. Fun. So thank you for joining us. I will link to some of your videos. I will also link to uh, Mini Haha Falls landscaping. And I'll include the article that was in the Star Tribune that details out some of the things you have in your yard. It's been a pleasure meeting you.
1: Oh, wonderful to meet you too. Thanks a lot, Steph.
0: Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.